0: Welcome to the Strong MD Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jamie Seaman. On today's episode, I'll be sitting down with Michelle Haruska. Michelle has over 23 years of experience working in the field of mental health and substance use disorders. She has worked with children, adolescents, and adults in a dual diagnosis treatment setting ranging from outpatient to residential treatment centers. She has provided alcohol substance use assessments and alcohol and substance use counseling for individuals, families, and groups. Michelle is a licensed independent mental health practitioner and a licensed alcohol and drug counselor in the state of Nebraska. Michelle holds a BA in human services from the college of St. Mary and a masters of science in community counseling from the university of Nebraska at Omaha. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Michelle Horesco, welcome to the Strong MD Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here today. And we're going to have a super important discussion today um, about addiction, about doctors, about the lives that we lead. But um, I want you to kind of give the listeners a little bit about your background. You work as a licensed independent mental health therapist and also a counselor in drug abuse and addiction. Yes tell people what what that really entails and and maybe a little bit about how you ever got into this as your passion
1: oh um so a licensed independent mental health practitioner and licensed alcohol and drug counselor so i'm would, would be considered duly credentialed so as a LIMHP, we can work with drug and alcohol but they we like to have people that have that additional uh, training or experience um so that's the the licensed alcohol and drug counselor i got into this field after i um lived by a foster home and had a neighbor basically that lived in that foster home who had been through the system uh, drugs and alcohol and um, domestic violence he grew up with that and so i became a counselor um, thinking i would be working in that part of the field more so with um, domestic violence um, but then got into working with alcohol and drugs more deeply and absolutely love it Um, so I've just continued my career now for my 24 years now in drug and alcohol. Um,
0: so I really, I really like that. And in your current job setup, you actually work with, well, you haven't worked with me yet, but (laughs) hopefully I never make it to your office, uh, Michelle, but but now you work with doctors and healthcare professionals who are in need of your assistance. So tell us a little bit about what that looks like, because I think there's probably some medical professionals that don't even know services like this even exist.
1: Absolutely, there's a, a lot of healthcare professionals that don't know we exist almost until it's too late, until mm-hmm. they have to have our services or need our services or, or are referred to us. So I it's the way Nebraska is, it's a statute through um, Nebraska that, they have a licensed doc- or a licensed licensee assistance program is the actual title and that they have a licensed alcohol and drug counselor as well as a mental health practitioner that that facilitates that
0: so and available to every doctor in the every state every healthcare professional healthcare which, professional which, so that
1: includes anyone of course, doctors, nurses—kind of what we think of healthcare right. professionals—but it Physical also includes therapists. cosmetologists, um, estheticians, oh, tattoo artists. So ones that anybody that has a, a license. Nebraska license that falls under that unit um, uh, credentialing the.
0: You can Universal access Revening services. Yep. Is it free to them or is this
1: paid? The drug and alcohol assessment itself is free. Our monitoring services are free. If we make any recommendations after you come in for the evaluation to have treatment or counseling, then that would be paid through either your insurance or private pay. We do not offer counseling or treatment on our as part of our program, but then I would monitor that. But all of those services that we
0: specifically do are free. And you work for a health system here in Omaha, Nebraska that provides... Uh, these type of services to their employees. Is that yes. right?
1: So I work for Methodist um, and under Methodist is the Employee Assistance Program and the Employee Assistance Program provides services for about 250 different companies throughout the United States. Um, and then under kind of the, the EAP portion is my portion of the Licensee Assistance Program. And so I can work with healthcare professionals for any any agency or mm-hmm. hospital throughout Nebraska.
0: Is this unique to Nebraska, or if there's somebody listening in another state, is there likely something like this in every state?
1: Yes. Every state has some sort of uh, physician's health program or professional's health program. There are um, differences in ours compared with the majority of other states, such as we cover all of those professions. That, um, I mentioned there's about 30
0: professions that we so cover. So not all states cover Correct. everybody with a license, Correct. but Nebraska does.
1: Most cover just kind of doctors, MDs of any sort, mm-hmm. nurses, um, dentists, um, trying to
0: think of some of the,
1: what I think what most people, when we think of healthcare, what we think that to mean is what most states will cover. Um, and they also, in other states, also cover mental health. So the difference with this our program, the Licensee Assistance Program, the way the state statute is written, is it can only cover drug and alcohol. Mm-hmm. So as a Truly credentialed therapist that I mentioned. Um, I have never in my career met a person who just has a drug and alcohol problem. Um, There's always something Something else that goes with it.
0: So let's talk about that. You know, why would such services exist if they weren't being utilized or if they weren't needed and and necessary? What, when it comes to a healthcare professional, um, why is self care? I mean, how do we? how do we do self-care for mental health and addiction? Like, why should a doctor listening even care? They're like, no, I'm not addicted to anything, you know?
1: Because they're the ones that have all that stress and burnout. And, mm. um, you know, especially, you know, one of the things that we had mentioned um, earlier is talking about medical students and um, fellows and also residents. residents. Yeah. And the fact that, People you know, particularly learning. residents that have those long shifts where they're, not getting sleep. They're not taking care of themselves. They're not, um, you know, being able to spend time with family and friends. They're, you know, all of their time is specifically um, to their job. Um, And as healthcare professionals, and I'm included in that as well, being, you know, when I talked about the healthcare professionals, that includes, you know, licensed mental health practitioners as well, who we all should know exactly how to take care of ourselves, just as doctors should know how to take care of themselves. But we don't. We're always about, as healthcare professionals, taking care of our patients or our clients and putting forth all of our effort into that, that we forget that we have to have our own health self-care. Um, and that leads to burnout, stress, com- compassion fatigue, um, depression, anxiety, substance use disorders over time, um, suicidal ideations, you know, that, that can you know. all lead to, if we're not taking care of ourselves, leads to those things.
0: I've heard statistics that doctors and dentists have some of the highest suicide rates amongst professionals. Is that, I mean, is that a a real thing? Is that something I read on the internet or? It's
1: true. I don't have a statistic, a particular number, but it is true. Um, And anesthesiologists fall in that as well. And um, for nursing, it would be your CRNAs fall Mm -hmm. into that higher suicidal and, and rate as well.
0: Why do healthcare professionals not seek help? You mentioned that sometimes people don't even know about your services until it's too late. Why, why are they not, you know, seeking this type of service if if they're having, a, you know, an issue? I'd
1: say probably the main thing that I see in my practice is stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have even mental health practitioners don't come in for for it because they're right. still that you're a mental health practitioner. You should know. You can't have these problems. Yes, you, yeah, should you should know how to, know how to depression get out of or anxiety. Yeah, right. Um, But stigma is a big a big big piece of that there was there is one statistic that um I thought was very interesting that I I found. mean
0: doctors are horrible patients let's yes. just be really like really yes. real here <laughs> yes we uh we, we joke about <laughs> it but it's it, I mean it's true to you know to a point too and so are nurses
1: um I will my husband's a ICU nurse and so I I hear a lot you know just in talking with him about different things that make me think of things very differently than I probably would have if I didn't have somebody in my life who was a practicing healthcare professional um, in a hospital. Um, but this was in October of 2020, the American College of Emergency Physicians did a poll, and it was kind of small. It was 862 emergency department physicians. But of them, 73% said that they felt there was a st- stigma about seeking mental health treatment in their workplace. Fifty-seven percent of them reported they would be concerned for their job if they sought mental health treatment. That is what we see a lot of is that stigma, as well as oh my gosh, I might lose my license. Um, what happens with my insurance? Um, you know, as as you know, health right. doctors have to be, well, and other healthcare professionals too have to be covered by different insurance panels. Right. So, what if they find out? Um, that I've gone to treatment or that I have problem with my alcohol use or my addiction to opiates. Um, and so that's a big piece of it. The fear of just their licensure piece, the fear of losing their jobs, fear of their family too. You know, what's my family going to think Because a lot of times they're hiding it. Um, and so I, that's what I see.
0: Yeah. That. I mean, I think that our biggest vulnerability is our medical license because it's our livelihood. And for many Doctors, you know, they may be providing for their family, their spouse may not work. I mean, I can totally see where that, you know, you feel like there's a really large burden on you to, you know, to be able to go to work and do your job. Um, If you lose your license, you can't work. And then, yeah, you're right. Other things, you know, medical malpractice, disability, uh, you know, and just the social stigma of this isn't something that we talk about a lot around water tank around the coffee yes. table and a so is any, anybody feeling anxious today you know right <laughs> and a big piece of it, we're not talking and
1: that it's been yes. you know for so many years through even through starting in med school it's pushed down and pushed down and we don't talk about it and and that and I wouldn't even say just I should just say med school as a whole people do not talk about it because it's yeah. had this stigma but I think within the healthcare profession it's it is the fact that we kind of think that we should be able to handle all of it. We can help our patients. Why can't we help ourselves? Yeah. Um, and I, one of the things that I have always thought about too is, you know, thinking about med school and then going into residency and kind of the superhuman, I have to be everything to everybody. Mm-hmm. And if I can't do that, then I'm a failure. So a lot of that too is they people feel that they're failures, which very, very, very negative thoughts, not true, but very negative of themselves. Yeah. Um,
0: because it is, it's a, you know, there's prestige and you're distinguished and you're a medical doctor. I mean, this is something that a lot of people do aspire to and, and not a lot of people go actually, you know, jump through the steps to do it. Right. And, and it's financially a, a risk too. You know, we pay a lot of money to go through training and you may have large debt to pay off <laughs> and that adds another layer of, you know, stress, financial stress to, to an already difficult job.
1: Yes. Well, and the shame and guilt, yeah. so much shame and guilt. Um, and I would say that's a lot of what my clients will say when they get to the point where they are feeling that they're heading towards that recovery, they start talking about the shame and guilt and that is a turning point for them, mm. which is just amazing to see yeah. um, because they can break that down. And, and uh, many people that I've worked with end up doing trainings or, you know, sitting with, um, if they have a small practice or if they um, are even a partner in a practice, they'll do trainings with their uh, other partners or even with their um, nurses or who PAs, whomever they kind of have working with them, they will do trainings with them to help. So that other people don't feel the same way. So that if they're having some yeah. problems, then they know they can step forward to and ask That's
0: for help. That's incredible to use to use it for good. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that anesthesiologists, certified nurse anesthetists, had this higher, you know, the rate of suicide. When we think about addiction. Um, alcohol, drug, addiction, abuse, whatever uh, you know—you call it. Are there particular areas of medicine that you, do we see higher numbers? Like I'm thinking of subspecialties, you know, I'm an OBGYN. Um, is it the anesthesiologist? Is it surgeons? Is it, you know, one area that you see more than others? Or um, is it kind of not really, you know, does it touch every little piece of medicine? So,
1: when I broke down, I did do some numbers just kind of for my own knowledge too, because um, I do it every day. So I don't look at whom yeah. I'm all working with as, as just individual people, yeah, right. right? Or right. I mean, as individual um, specialties. I look at, oh, you're so and so, and you're, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I th- when I was thinking about doctors, the way that we break it down is we ba- we break it down by board. So because I have to report back, um, not to the board on who's seeing me, but who's using our services. So, you know, that includes um, podiatrists, uh, pharmacy, this is kind of what I put down, or pharmacists, um, physical therapists, um, let's see, optometry, dentists, medical surgical, kind of your, you would fall under OB, would fall under medical surgical, um, kind of one who doesn't have like a veterinarian who has their own kind of specialty or their own board. Um, And so most of them fall under just that medical surgical Mm -hmm. um, and pharmacist. Um, And then of course, when I, 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 anesthesiology. That is a big one because of the access that they have to the opiates. And one of the things that we see too with with healthcare professionals, particularly those that are in a doctor role, um, is I know how, and nurses too, I know how much I can give somebody and what it will do to them. So I know how much I can take myself mm-hmm. to get the effect that I need. And so that's why we see more with the anesthesiologist with opiates and, and alcohol. And that was, you know, one thing too, alcohol and opioid use are our two highest
0: um, I was just about to yeah. ask, what what are people addicted to when we talk about substance abuse? Yep,
1: Alcohol and opiates. Those are still our biggest ones. Um, I have some stimulant use in there um, and some sedative use, but pretty much alcohol is, is the number one. Um, just, I, again, was looking at some numbers for myself and found out, you know, just in the last, when I looked at last year. So our, we do our contract with the state, which is who I'm actually, the Licensee Assistance Program is contracted with them because they're the ones who have the Mm-hmm. have it through the statute um and so from july 1st of 22 to june 30th of 23 um of the 26 people that that had a disorder 14 of them were alcohol use disorder 14 mm-hmm. percent, or i'm sorry uh 53 so 14 of them
0: yeah would, so that's pretty high i would love to talk about alcohol so my husband and i uh went on a i hate to call it a sober journey or being sober curious because we didn't really have a problem but uh, just working in the healthcare you know, world, and in, uh, I'm a huge advocate of preventative medicine. We decided to give up alcohol for a year. My father is a recovering alcoholic. And so from October 1st of 22 uh, to, to 23, we gave up alcohol for 365 days. And it was such an eye-opening experience for us really just seeing the world, being able to go to social events, to go to fundraisers, to go to these different places where normally alcohol, its, it's so, I realized how pervasive it mm-hmm. really is. I mean, you're offered it on Friday night when you're out with the neighbors and then you're at dinner. The first thing they do is bring you the wine list, the cocktail list. Every fundraiser we ever went to was an open bar. I mean, we just didn't realize how much we interacted with it. And although we didn't have a problem with consuming, um, I have never in my life had to explain myself so many times. I people are like, why aren't you drinking? Are you sick? Are you pregnant? Are you? Do you have a problem? Did you get a DUI? Do, you know, mm-hmm. It was like, wow, I've never had to explain myself so many times. So how can we use something like alcohol just so openly and so freely in society? Um, and then you're sitting here dealing with people where alcohol has absolutely ruined their life. So... For somebody listening right now, how do they determine if they have a problem with using alcohol?
1: I always tell people when things start happening in their life that they don't like, you know, that could be arguments with family, could be arguments with significant others. When people start saying something to them that, hey, you know, gosh, you seem like you had a lot more to drink last night than you'd usually do, or mm. you're progressively getting, you know more. Um, And when they start feeling that um, they're looking at their life, this is kind of where people end up with me. So I'm kind of going to answer two questions, I think. Um, They start looking at their life and they're not feeling good about it. Mm -hmm. Um, They might be getting, you know, not, I wouldn't say in trouble at work yet, but they're coming to work late. Um, They're not feeling 100% when they get there. Um, But prior to that, I think, a lot of the people that I've worked with, when they finally get to that point again where they're really looking at that sobriety, they'll go back and say, you know, I I told you that I think this is where I started having a problem. Well, now I've learned that no, it was back here. It was when I would drive home from work at night and I would pass the gas station and go, oh, I should stop and pick up a bottle of wine or a 12-pack of beer, mm-hmm. um, and not really thinking about some of those things. Or even like you mentioned, they, you know, they start going to these events and they determine that, wow, you know, I'm drinking more each time I go to one of these events. It does seem
0: to taste better when you're not paying for it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I think you were know. you, you so right, too, that it's just offered everywhere we go. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things I'm wondering if you found out when you were not drinking for that year also is how many TV ads there are for alcohol how many road signs you see driving down the road for alcohol yeah um it's just amazing to me that
0: it's everywhere well and when you think about uh tobacco for instance the tobacco companies used physicians and doctors in their ad campaigns to sell tobacco and cigarettes you know it's it's pretty mind-blowing when you think about mm-hmm. the mm. marketing and the and the ploy behind selling these substances i mean i don't think we of alcohol as addictive as nicotine and tobacco but but certainly it's very pervasive mm-hmm. and there there are many people that can cannot control their intake absolutely yeah um so when when people seek you out i think something i would be wondering it, when you say people are afraid of losing their license or just the ramifications of the stigma associated with it what is actually reportable sure when somebody comes to you and they're like oh yeah I'm I'm showing up to work drunk you know mm-hmm. what is actually reportable so as far as just
1: thinking about individuals so you or I or any of us that have licenses if we get a DUI or any alcohol or drug related charge of any kind mm-hmm. we have 30 days from the date of conviction So not thirty days from when it happened. So oftentimes people will get a DUI and maybe they'll get diversion. As long as they complete their diversion, they never have to report that because to the state medical to the state medical board because they have not been convicted of it. Got it. um, Or any of the boards also. Um, So that's one thing. Um, So any other types of reportable would be um, any suspensions if we're suspended from our jobs for any reason, we have to report that. And if we're terminated, we have to report that to the all of the boards as well all again both having 30 days because our employer also has to report that within 30 days as far as my job um, when someone comes in to see me um, i have i say there's two times when i have to report it's a little bit more than that when you look at it as a whole but the first time i have to report is if i have firsthand knowledge that someone has gone to work under the influence and has actually practiced Um, you know i've had people who've maybe gone to work but they haven't clocked in they haven't seen any patients or done anything they just have gotten there and have been either been like, no, I, I can't do this. This is the wrong thing to do. Um, Or somebody has stopped them. um, And so they've left. Um, So if I know firsthand and it has to be firsthand knowledge, I can't have somebody call and say, Hey, this person, right. This person's been drinking at work. Okay. You need to then go to your, your supervisor and tell them. Um, The other time that I have to report is if someone's involved in our program, they sign a compliancy agreement stating that they will follow the treatment recommendations and, you know, our monitoring agreement and whatever it is that, you know, we're recommending that they do. So, if they become non-compliant with that treatment plan. And that can be things from, you know, not... Completing their counseling or treatment, whatever level of care we recommend, that could be not calling me and keeping in contact with me, not returning my phone calls. You know, if mm-hmm. I don't know, if I can't talk to you. I don't necessarily know what's going no on. What's
0: going on with you? Yeah. Um,
1: not doing body fluid screens, continuing to test positive. That's a question I get a lot: is if I relapse once, are you going to report me? I will not. Um, I have been doing this for a very long time and realized that you know the recovery process is different for everybody, um, and we and we have bumps along the way now if you continue you know drinking or using then at some point yes i do have to report that but typically what happens if someone has a relapse or or a lapse um then i look at that and say okay what do we need to do do you need to go to a higher level of care do we need to increase your counseling do we need to increase meetings you know there's Mm -hmm. um there is something i would like to mention kind of while we're kind of this is a good spot for it um the licensee support group there's a in nebraska there and it's it's very um similar to what i would say a cadacious meeting is um, but it's open to all licensed healthcare professionals in nebraska of all levels um, lots of nurses um, doctors um, anesthesiologists all the ones that we've kind of talked about yeah. in there um, it is offered here in omaha it's actually at the hope center um, off right behind um, methodist yeah. over there in children's Absolutely. hospital um, on tuesdays and sundays and then um, it is also Via Zoom, one of the good things that came out of COVID was we've been able to open, yeah. or they've been able. I'm not part of that, and you don't have to be in our program to be in that. Um, but it is open to you know everybody now because they don't have to be able to drive to Omaha. Um, right. And so that that has been something that's been wonderful for people to be able to to meet up with other people that are in their same situation that are healthcare professionals, and it really helps with that stigma and the. The shame that they feel—that oh, I'm not the only one. That's right. probably one of the one things that people say to me. Pretty much everyone I've worked with, I have to be the only nurse who's ever done this. I have to be the only doctor who's ever done this. I'm sure I'm it the only vet that's isolating. done this, yeah. right? Yeah. And 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 I guess fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at that, you're, they're not. Um, I've always told people that I wish I did not have a job, um, and that health, you know, healthcare workers and all everybody, you know, did not have to deal with addiction. But unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I will always have a, a job.
0: When somebody enters your program, I mean, program, you kind of said it kind of depends what level of care they need. I, I'm just thinking to myself, I'm really busy. I don't have time. You know, okay, fine. So-and-so said I have a problem. Now I've got to do this mm-hmm. thing, this extra thing. What does that look like? Is mm-hmm. it weekly? Is it multiple times per week? Is it once a month? I mean, What does it look like to go through a program like this if I'm looking for employee assistance.
1: So as far as the um, licensee assistance program, which is separate from the employee assistance, so make sure um, Sure. that's clear. Um, So as far as our program and working with with healthcare professionals and drug and alcohol, there's multiple different levels of care. So the basic would be our outpatient counseling, which is like one time a week that, you know, we kind of think of when we think of counseling, we think of, oh, you're going to a counselor. It's usually one time a week. Um, Intensive outpatient is three days a week, three hours a day um and there are the nice thing about that now is it used to always be in the evenings now there's some during the days because you know we have nurses who work overnights sure. and, and doctors too who kind of you know depending on their on-call schedule and thing you know so having that that evening and day one is good then there's um um partial hospitalization that's usually depending on the program it's usually five days a week five to six hours a day and then residential or inpatient which we always think of as that
0: 28 days what would require inpatient or residential treatment?
1: So I what I look for, there's the, the diagnostic criteria, same, you know, as diagnosing somebody and kind of looking at what are their symptoms. Um, so somebody who would need residential typically is somebody who might need detox. Um, I look at, you know, are they drinking daily? What's that look like? How much? Um, are they having withdrawal symptoms? Is their tolerance higher? So
0: you know, they've got some sort of physical dependency. Very, yes, yeah. very,
1: very typical to have that physical. They don't always have that physical, but most of the mm-hmm. time. Um, and so that's where we look at um, at inpatient. The other time would be is if they've tried a lower level of care and haven't been successful, then we would move somebody up to an, okay. a residential or inpatient. And there is long-term residential which is usually 90 days to six months. Yes. Um, we don't have any of those here in this area. Um, so most often you would have to go out of
0: state for those. Does a spouse or a partner or a family ever play a part in their therapy and recovery? Oh, absolutely. Um, at least that would be the goal. <laughs>
1: um, and so a lot of the treatment f- programs and facilities, if they're inpatient, have family days, they have family counseling, and then you know, again, something... There are occasional things that came out of COVID that were good, and that is the ability to do Zoom with your family um, and be able to do those sessions that way so that they can be a part of it if they, you know, I, I've had people that have gone to California for treatment and their family's here, so being able to include them because they're when that person leaves that residential facility, they they're coming back here. Mm-hmm. You know, they're coming back to their family and the stress and the, maybe the marital problems that were going on because of the drinking or the marital problems that were going on that, you know, led to the drinking. Mm-hmm. You know, those things are still happening. And, and um, that is very, very important. And especially, you know, with kids too, you know, kids harbor a lot of anger towards their parents yeah. when they're drinking or using.
0: When you dive into these sessions with people, of course you're trying to figure out why do they have this problem in the first place, right? And um, it, certainly some of these substances are just naturally addictive, but I, I feel most people are probably using to get away or hide from from some problem. Do you find that it's more work related with physicians or do you find that it's still you know um, mm. marriage issues, kid issues or do you kind of think it's split halfway?
1: Oh that's a hard question yeah because I think it I think it would be split I mean I mean well, I think factorial. I th- correct yeah. it, but I think that there's something that makes it begin mm-hmm. and I see a lot of the the family piece of it particularly um, with with nurses mm-hmm. um, I guess would be the bigger one who have kind of the the crazy schedules of the 12-hour shifts and the overnights and you know really how do you, you know, work an overnight shift, have three kids, and still try to be a wife and a and a mom mm-hmm. or dad, and so wife husband, um, and still maintain your own mental health and your own right. self care? And so I see that a lot. I would say with the with nursing, um, one of the things I think that I find different between male and female in nursing and in, as with doctors, is the compartmentalization. Mm -hmm. Um, I've talked a lot even with my husband about that because of, you know, when COVID was happening and well, and even now, but just the amount of death that was being seen and, you know, men were compartmentalizing that, which not always a good thing. It's good probably in the moment, yeah. um, but then that I think is a, a, when we look at the work side of it, I feel like that might be where we're seeing more on the work side is that they're not addressing how they feel about things that are happening at work around them. And it's usually, you know, I think about a doctor having to to talk to a family about some life-changing, you know, diagnosis or um, having to tell somebody that they have, you know, a, a few short weeks to live. Yeah. That is that is not an easy thing to do. And so I, I feel just in my experience and what I've seen, not only as in my profession or my position, but also in my own personal life with friends, yeah. that those are the types of things that I feel like lead to the to the work side of it, pushing towards the, the use, as well as what you were talking about as well with going to functions and there being alcohol there.
0: Yeah. You're just exposed to it so much. Yeah. I was really asking the question because it, I notice a lot of my colleagues, there's a lot of burnout and of course there is death and there is dying. And there are cases that really weigh on our hearts. And, and you kind of talked about the differences between men and women, but I think just medicine in general, um, it's hard, you know, we're expected to see a lot of patients in a short amount of time and the patients are very demanding. And now we have these patient portal systems and there's more administrative burden. There's so much clicking. And, you know, so I was really trying to tease out, you know, is, is, have we just created this hamster wheel for physicians that is really hard to create resiliency within, you know, or is it just that we're busy professionals and it's hard to maintain all aspects of our life sometimes when we're not really taking care of ourselves. Any combination. Yeah. You
1: know, and I do agree with it with, the, and I, you talked about the patient portal, and I my thought with that is I think patients
0: expect immediate results. Oh, it's, yeah. In it, that, yeah. because, and that goes to... It's a well, double-edged sword. I, yes. It's a fantastic way to communicate <laughs> that saves us from being on the phone, but it allows people access, and um, it certainly sometimes can get abused. And. Uh, yeah, in its own right.
1: Which leads, I think, to what you were talking to about the burnout, too, mm-hmm. and the amount of patients. And and then, you know, I think about in the hospital setting, not only do you have the patient that you have to work with, then you have their family members right. um, and your family members. You know, when you go home, it's, you, I think, of, you know, my husband walks in at night and my kids immediately are like, dad, dad, dad. And it's like, wow, he still has his coat on and his shoes on and, you know, he's still got his bag. He doesn't yeah. hasn't even made it in the door yet.
0: No time to decompress at all. Right. And that drive home, you know, you're trying not to think about work. Yeah. Uh, When you deal with people, I mean, how often do people really recover? Or or is there a large proportion that tend to kind of live in their addiction for the rest of time?
1: You know, it's hard on my end because... I don't always, you don't know, I don't yeah. get to know yeah. first, you know, because so with me, if someone is being inv- investigated by the state or if they've had to report to the state at some point, the state will typically take over. Um, so that might be a, on, they're on probation. Um, and so I see them and then I don't really necessarily know what happens what to happens. them. Um, but yes, I think overall there, there is a high percentage rate of recovery. Um, and it goes back to a little bit about what you talked about earlier is that our profession and our licenses are so important that we lose those and everything changes for us. So people tend to know kind of that's hanging over their. Now I won't say hanging over their head, but it's another reason for them to remain sober Mm. is that I want to continue to practice or I want to go back to practicing. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a high rate of recovery because of that. Um, It's a little harder to just go down the street and get a different job, you know, if, if you don't have that license. Um, and so they use that for them to their benefit to know that if I don't stay sober, then I'm not going to be able to continue this. And then I think they just get to the point where um, people that, that really look deep within themselves in their recovery find that person that they were looking for and that person that they were maybe before their addiction. Right. Um, I get a lot of response from people of, wow. I was always present at Christmas, but now I'm present. I was always there, but I never knew what was going on. And wow, just the things that the memories and all of that that I'm making yeah. now are so phenomenal. Um, and they, they, I think, really focus on trying to remember those things that what what was a good thing about getting sober. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also had a lot of people tell me that I didn't think I could have fun sober, So when people realize that they can have fun and they can do fun things and be fun with their family and that, that helps them keep that, them in that sobriety too. And meetings for some people, and there's all sorts of different types of meetings, like we require them to attend meetings. It doesn't have to be AA. That might not be for you. There's smart recovery. Just the there's social the,
0: connection of. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. There's Dharma recovery. There's the licensee support group. Smart recovery is a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's just so many out there now. Again, a positive thing with COVID became opening up all of those different types of meetings to people everywhere. I have people who attend meetings because of their, their schedule. Mm-hmm. They might go to a meeting that is actually based in a different country. Um, But a meeting is meeting when you're looking at it that way. It is that social connection and it doesn't have to be physically in the same room together.
0: Do mental health disorders and abuse disorders tend to uh, coexist or or are they independent (laughs) of each other? I've
1: met people who have mental health disorders that don't have a substance use disorder, but I can honestly say I do have never met anybody who has a substance use disorder that does not have some sort of underlying or primary mental health.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does the mental health issue tend to precede the addiction and abuse of a substance? Typically, yes. Yeah.
1: I, I would say a, a, a high percentage of that, just in my experience, yeah. too. Yeah.
0: So, how do I look out for my colleagues? If I think that there is somebody in my clinic, in my office, maybe a nurse that I've interacted with that I have some concern, what should I do? Do I approach them? Do I call someone? W- w- give give me some advice. Sure,
1: absolutely. I guess it kind of depends on your role. Um, if there is a um, manager, uh, typically what we tell people is to go to that person's manager or director of nursing, whatever um, type of manager, position supervisor that, that, that is. Oversees them. Right, and let yeah. them know that there's a concern, what your concerns are, what have you seen, what um, now if there's an immediate where maybe you've walked past a nurse and maybe you smell alcohol or they're, you know, a, I get referrals from employers because they have an employee maybe who was swaying while they were walking or while they were talking, um, kind of, you know, slurring their words or kind of having their eyes kind of at a slant or closed. Mm-hmm. And so noticing those types of behaviors, things that are not typical of them, someone that's not having a, you know, acting the way they normally would, um, then at that point, you know, is your position as a, as a physician in that clinic being able to say something to them? Mm-hmm. I think there's that, that would be a appropriate step for you. Um, It's really hard though, you know, because typically what's going to happen is they are going to deny it, but we also tell people they can always call HR, can be a part of that as well. Um, I I work with a lot of people who have diverted drugs from work. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times they, um, HR, well, HR is always involved in those, but there is also an investigator if there's a hospital setting um, that's involved um, through the company.
0: Are you seeing less, I I know from the physician side of it, we now have the prescription drug monitoring program. We have much different systems within the hospital as far as like how very risky medications are dispensed, how they're wasted. Are we seeing less of that with less access to these things or are abuse addicts just getting smarter about procuring these things? I think we're still seeing about the same. Yeah. Um Yeah.
1: in your right, they find a way to do it. Um, what I do find over time, though, is they stop being so careful. They kind of mm-hmm. become careless. And as I've talked with people about that, they they will say, I got to the point where I needed to get caught because I wouldn't get help without it. Mm-hmm. So they're still, you know, putting saline if you're wasting with somebody putting saline, you know in the vial. So it looks like, oh, you're supposed to have two mls left. you have two mls left right um so still being able to do that um a big one that we see is people uh, giving medication and you know they go into the patient's room and they're like you know no you know I don't really need my my Percocet or my hydro i think I, i'm going to deny it for this so mm-hmm. instead of it writing it down that they denied it they will write that they actually gave the prescription um to right. the to the patient and then keep the, then keep the medication
0: yeah, yeah. okay yeah. yeah
1: i don't think i know i think it has helped catch things sooner by having all of those things in place. I don't yeah. think we're going so long without catching people. Right. Um, but I, I think it, it has not really changed the ability to
0: do those things. Uh, how often are people using street drugs or things that are outside of their system? I see that very, very rarely. Mm.
1: I can't even think of the last time, to be honest. Um, unless they're... I, can th- I guess I can think of one person who was, who was buying um, fentanyl on the street. Yeah. Um, but yeah. other than that, again, though, fentanyl. So, I mean, it's still a medical, right. Right. but I, I don't have people that are using heroin and occasionally I'll have a cocaine. I guess I, I've, I've within the last year had somebody with cocaine. Um, but very, very, very rarely.
0: It's yeah. We're hearing that. so much about the opiate, the fentanyl addiction. Mm-hmm. The, and, and I've, I've heard and seen, you know, tragedies from colleagues about, you know, who, get it from sources that you don't know what you're taking and we've seen deaths and overdoses and Narcan's becoming more available, you know, uh, to the, to the general population. But it's uh, a scary time that we're living in Mm -hmm. with, with some of these very powerful medicines
1: in the hands of
0: people who should not have them.
1: Right. And the fentanyl, you know, being laced
0: in other things Mm -hmm. in marijuana, veterinary medicines, car fentanyl, all these, yeah, yeah. All these types of things. Um, Do you have any good stories for us? I hate to be like (laughs) doom and gloom this whole podcast. I do. Can you tell us? Uh, Obviously, don't give us any information. I,
1: you know, I've had, so our program a little bit, we require a year of monitoring minimum. um, If anybody comes in with our program and we monitor them. Um, I've had a couple people who've wanted to continue monitoring um, just to kind of have that, that little extra knowing that, hey, if I have a problem, I can call Michelle. Um, and those are fun in a way because I get to see them over time, um, and I've had people that have celebrated five years and with me and said, "Okay, I'm I'm done. I need to, you need to cut me loose. Yeah. I need you need to let me go." Okay, um, and people that have come in and you know I think about how I when I talk to them on the phone the first time and then see them the first time versus and I don't typically see my my people more than once. Um, We do a lot of things by phone or over email. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But when they come in for the evaluation, which now I can do, you know, via telehealth, but um, I might see them one time and be in their life for two years. Um, And I think about that first Second time that I talk to them compared to maybe where they're at now a year later, and I can hear it in their voice. I can tell the difference, and those are the things that keep me wanting to do what I'm doing. You know, you have those positives. You have those those people that are like, you know, gosh, my where my life last year at this time. Um, I recently had somebody tell me I didn't care about the consequences a year ago. Now it's not about the consequences. It's about I love my sobriety and I love my life and. I I love that I can feel my feelings and that I don't have to go drink every time I feel bad about something. I I know how to deal with that now, and so those are the things that I I love. Mm-hmm. I you know and and then I also love when I see someone you know that maybe lost their license, that I see it pop up that they got their license back. I'm like, oh, that's awesome, you know, um, because they're doing what they need to do for themselves. You know, we always tell, say, do what you need to do, do it, do what you need to, what we tell you to do. But I'm not telling you to do it because I need you to do it or I want you to do it, mm-hmm. I want you to do it for you so that you can have all of those positive things in your life again. Yeah.
0: yeah. Do people leave medicine?
1: I've had some people. Um, and I would say even before the pandemic, I've had, I had people that left um, just because they, they knew that that was either their trigger um, or if they you know worked around, I, and I've had, I guess I should say too, I've had people that have changed where maybe they were working in a hospital and had access to opiates and also well, benzos and all of that, and maybe have changed to a different position to working where a different. Maybe setting. now they're working in a clinic because yeah. they they don't you know want to have access to all of that, but they still want to practice. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I see that a lot with nurses too. A lot of that with nurses.
0: You brought up the pandemic. Did you see higher rates of addiction and substance abuse through the pandemic? We did yeah. mostly
1: with alcohol. Yeah,
0: I would say that was the biggest were home and mm-hmm. in their four walls and. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a tough year for yes. <laughs> a lot of a lot of different reasons. So so many. Yeah. Well, Michelle, this has been so wonderful. For somebody listening that's not in Nebraska, uh, well, first I guess let's talk about somebody who lives in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. How can they find you or the License Assistance Program? Yeah,
1: absolutely. It, we have a website. It's L A P N E. So L A P Nebraska, basically L A P N E dot org. Um, or they can just type in Nebraska Licensee Assistance Program and our information will be there. Um, calling me, I, I work a normal an eight to, 8 to 4.30 or 8.30 to 5 job, um, but definitely can leave messages, send emails, and um, get something set up if need be. Or if they just have questions, I have a lot of employers that call and just say, you know, what do I need, like you were talking, what do I need to do in this situation? I have this employee and I don't know what to do. Um, and oftentimes I'll try to get them to call me and you can, people can call me and not ever give me their name Mm -hmm. and I can work with them through just a phone call and try to get them, you know, in the right direction. If they're looking for something specific or if they have questions, you know, sometimes people are very afraid to come into our program because they know that, that piece of reporting to the licensure board is there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I get that. I, that would be very scary to know that that could happen. Um, Mm -hmm. So I try to help people find other avenues if they need help. Um, It doesn't have to be through us, but yeah, on the internet or.
0: And for people outside of Nebraska, are there any good resources? I mean, gosh, these days with social media and with the internet, I mean, (laughs) we have so many things, you know, at our fingertips. Are there any good resources you can think of for people that, that might just be needing some help or, or uh, looking for more information?
1: Oh, I think if you just, whatever you're looking for, if you're looking for opioid use disorder, if you type it in, so much will come yeah. up. It is, it, you're right. It's amazing. Um, I think, you know, the Center for Disease Control has a lot of information. Um, the, um, trying to think of some of the other ones, NIDA has lots of information out there. Um, so I always try to Tell people, you know, make sure it's it's a good place. But you can also go to any addiction sites, um, like recovery places, Mm -hmm. and they always have information on um, what to look for. Um, They might have some some tests out there. There's online testing that you can do. The MAST, which is a screening test for uh, for alcohol, the DAST for drugs. um, Those types of drug or those types of um, assessments that you can do right there online that will help you determine sort of Mm self-assessment.
0: Well, I can say that, um, through our one year of being alcohol free, we have seen the non-alcoholic beverage market skyrocket. So some days (laughs) I want to take total personal responsibility (laughs) for that, that I made it cool or something like that, but it's, it it is true. We're seeing, you know, more non-alcoholic beers. I just saw the other day, some advertisement for non-alcoholic seltzers. And so, I'm excited that we're starting to offer these things that allow people to still kind of, you know, engage in social situations and and still kind of, you know, be present in their life and not feel mm-hmm. like they're, you know, you got to order water. So well, um, and
1: you mentioned, too, that people are asking you, you know, I think for women, they immediately go to, oh, are you pregnant? Yeah. And but men don't have that. It's right. like, oh, what, did, what happened? What did it's you do like wrong? that You're not a stigma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's. I should be able to walk around with the water or a diet Coke or whatever and not have anybody ask me why I'm not having something alcoholic to drink.
0: I got pretty savvy at ordering club soda with a lime and <laughs> okay. nobody asked, but um I just, I was amazed, you know, uh, and people sometimes would say too, oh, wow, I think I could do that for a month, but I could definitely not do that for a year. Right. You know? And well, these are people that I would not identify as having a problem. But they fully admitted there is no way that they could cut that out for a year.
1: Well, dry January. Yeah. You know, everyone talks about having dry January and not drinking anything. And, you know, there's people who struggle with that. Um, I've had people that I know in my personal life that give it up for Lent, you know, and then... And I think for some people, it's their thought that if if I can do it for Lent, then I must must not have a problem or if I can do it for January, I must not have a problem. Yeah. Um, that doesn't and maybe you don't. I'm not saying everyone does, but you could still potentially have a problem, even though you can give it up for shorter periods of time.
0: I thought it was a great experience to just kind of see does it add value to my life? Does it take away value? And I, I was amazed what we got out of it. we We could. we could still have fun. we we still were able to vacation. We were, Able to really experience all the things that we experience. And it was interesting what you said about somebody saying, like, they were more present at Christmas, you know, when they were sober or clean. Um, my husband and I didn't really drink heavily, but even one or two drinks, it was amazing how much it would affect us the next day mm-hmm. when we have to be parents and we have to be at the basketball games or, or be <laughs> at places. And just your brain working that, even if it's one or 2% less. Um, it was amazing to not ever feel that way and to just feel like us, Mm -hmm. you know, all the time. That was an incredible feeling. So I think for anybody listening, if you're, we'll call it sober curious, I guess that's the terminology. Mm -hmm. uh, There are a ton of groups out there. There's pages, there's Instagram pages and Facebook pages with, you know, mocktails and all these Mm -hmm. things. And so I think it's just something if you're interested in it, go explore it. um, Even if you don't think you have a problem. And if you do for sure, you know, reach out and find somebody that can help you.
1: And I think something like that too, gives people that don't have a problem, an idea of what it's like for people who might have a problem Mm -hmm. to go to these functions. And I think felt, I feel like it made you just feel more aware of, of how much it was around you and you didn't even really realize it. You know, think about someone having an addiction and, you know, maybe they're only, you know, 30 days sober and they have to go to this event for work and here's all this alcohol. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on top of that, you have people asking, well, why aren't you drinking? Oh, here, why don't you have your, or hand, you know, directly handling, handing it to them. So, you know, I, I work with people too, just in phone calls. I talk to my people, at least once a month, but some of them I talk to more, more frequently. And we talk about those things, especially as holidays are coming up as, um, you know, New Year's, some, New Year's, Fourth of July, St. Patrick's Day, all of those, those ones where there's always alcohol, holiday right? Yeah. Memorial Day is another big one, you know, and what can you do to keep yourself safe? So making sure that you ha- bring your own drinks you know, bring your own car, make sure you drive yourself so that if if it gets too out of hand or you get to the point where you feel like you're starting to feel triggered, you can. You can just get in your car and go and you don't have to worry about being Mm -hmm. under the influence driving home. You can just get in and go Um, because that is hard. It's very hard. And or bringing someone with you that's also sober, you know, that's part of your support group and so that they can be there with you.
0: Yeah, we tend to really mimic the behaviors of the people we hang out with. So yes. sometimes it's just finding friends that are doing really healthy things. And, you know, it's, it's tough, though. And well, and those are the people that, that you
1: influence. know are, are your friends, too, Are mm-hmm. that when they are not asking you why you're not drinking, but they're supporting it, right. they're not teasing you about it or they're not, um, you know, get handing it to you and say, oh, you can have one.
0: Yeah.
1: Find a tribe
0: that supports you Mm -hmm. for sure. Well, Michelle, this was so wonderful. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I enjoyed this. Thank you so much for watching and listening to today's episode of the Strong MD podcast. If you'd like to find more information, you can find links in the episode description Please make sure that you like and subscribe to this podcast so you guys will never miss an episode. I'm your host, Dr. Jamie Seaman, and I'll see you on the next episode.